Uh, thank you, Jan and company. Really appreciate our worship team. You guys? Yeah, I, I know, uh, and I know they don't, they don't do it for, uh, for all of our applause and our thanks, but man, um, so many volunteers, Jan, company, and so many, um, so grateful for you guys. Um, well, hey, you found us in the last part of a seven-part series we're calling Engendered Species. Um, two things before I begin. Number one, uh, I have been very encouraged by you during this series, okay? Um, probably unlike any other series I've done, in my recent memory, you have provided me with so much feedback to what has been talked about here that it has been a, a real tangible encouragement to me, the way that you have interacted with me on this in between Sunday to Sunday. And so you may think that making a comment or dropping a note or whatever might have little impact in the life, uh, you know, in my life or whatever, but let me just tell you that's not true, okay? The way that you've worked with me on this, the, the comments you've made have been a tangible kind of boost for me. Even as I prep these, it's like, you know what? This is really hitting these, this person here, this person here. So your stories uh, have really helped me uh, in this series. I just want to thank you for that, okay? And the interaction that we've had, appreciated that. Um, secondly, I want to give you a little advertisement for where we're going next, okay? So we're finishing this today. Next week, uh, Pastor Kevin is going to come and share a message here. Following that, then we're going to do a mini-series. Okay? We're going to do a little mini-series uh, that will lead us up to Easter. And on Easter, we're starting something new. But the mini-series that's coming next is called this, uh, A Fighting Chance. <laughs> how, to, how to basically win your toughest battles. All right? We're going to be in one little passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 to 15. We're going to talk about, for three weeks the nature of temptation, some tools to help win that fight, and then try to give you some hope and encouragement that with God's help, we actually can get over the things that continually nag and draw us down, the temptations and things that we struggle with. So if you've ever felt like, I don't think I can get over this, I can't get away from, that habit continues, my default tendency is, and I've tried and given up, and I just want to say for three weeks, we're going to talk biblically about giving yourselves a fighting chance to deal with the things that can so easily drag us down. All right? So that's starting in two weeks, fighting chance, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 11, 15. Okay? So back to engendered species. Here we go, part seven. This series, in case you're joining us for the first time here this morning, you're listening online later, it's the first time you're listening to this, you might wonder, what is this? Uh, number one, I don't even know if this is a word. I guess it is a word, engendered, but I kind of made it up trying to make the point that we're living in a world in which the male and female gender are almost becoming an endangered species, as if somehow um, we prefer for male and female to fade away into the sunset and now live in a world of gendered extinction, not distinction, but extinction, where we treat each other as human beings but kind of forget that I'm male and you're female. We just kind of don't discuss that because we want equality. And so we're living in a world that is an attempt to honor one another, an attempt to bring dignity to one another, are beginning to strip away gender distinction as if that's the answer to make sure that we all feel equal. And my point in this whole thing is if we rediscover the beauty of God's design, we'll realize that that act of stripping away gender actually makes us less human than more human and actually diminishes your humanity rather than enhances it. So in this series, we've really talked along the way 
beginning this way. We've asked this question, number one, is there a moral authority on this issue, or is it simply whoever is the smartest person in the room wins? I put my cards on the table and said, I'm going back to the book of Genesis, going back to the Bible and saying, this is where we begin. So I, I wrestle with that, and I say, if God was here first, that he kind of gets to set the rules on how we work and how we function. Then we said this, that humanity has value because of God's image, that God's image stamped on us brings us value, and that God's image includes gender distinction. That he stamped male and female with his image, that brings equality to humanity, and it includes gender distinction. And so if that's true, then we had to ask big questions. If that's true, then what does it mean to be a man? And then, consequently, what does it also mean to be a woman? So we defined man this way. You'll remember this, I'm sure, right? A man is a biologically born male who grows into his role of headship by using his strength to serve those around him through ordering the world for their benefit. An absolute mouthful. If you want to tease that out a little bit more, go back to the message, the podcast on that, and pull that out. A lot in there about what it means to grow up, not just to be a boy, but a man, and what behaviors, etc., follow that. And so this is what we believe from Genesis chapter 1 and then into chapter 2. Ask the corresponding question, what does it mean to be a woman? A dangerous thing for a man to speak about, but we went into it, and here's what we said, that a woman is a biologically born female who functions as an indispensable partner to the man in carrying out the work of human flourishing. Again, if you want to tease that out, we invite you to go back to that message and pull that out a little bit and learn more about what we mean by that. But again, in my estimation, giving great value and dignity to what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Okay. Now, with that being said, here we are today, the end of this series, All right, and all that I want to give to you today, what I want to give to you today is, is a way to think about this entire topic with what I'm going to end up calling a bigger story. I want to give you a principle or a way to think through how do I interact on this issue in the place that I find myself. And I want to land the plane that way, and I think you'll see where I'm at in a minute. Now, to drive this point home a little bit more about the gender distinction, I want to remind you of uh, some things that we had talked about here with um, gender distinction. And Denny Burke made this statement. I wanted to share with you because it's a good starting point for us here this morning. He says this, we dare not miss that God created sexual differentiation. The terms male and female are not cultural constructs. They are not social roles foisted upon mankind by the accretion of culture and tradition. In other words, what it means to be male and female is not defined by culture. I uh, toyed around with playing uh, a bunch of video clips throughout this series, and I ended up pulling out a bunch of them. But one of them I went back to was a Leave it to Beaver piece, and maybe an I Love Lucy piece right, that talked about traditional roles of men and women. We play it up here, and we start laughing about it. Why? Because years ago, there were different assumptions culturally about how I work out my maleness and how I work out my femaleness. Okay? And what he's saying is that culture does not define what it means to be male or female. That's just not the way it works. That culture, if that's all you will listen to, if that's your primary grid of figuring out what is male or female, then you're going to have some problems and struggle. There will be confusion along the way. He goes on to say this. Male and female designate the fundamental distinction that God has embedded in the very biology of the race. That from the very beginning, God chose to designate male and female, and that is it. So male and female is not a product of our culture in the way that we think through that. Okay. So with that being said, I'd like to talk about 
how we even approach this. I will tell you this morning. This morning will be what I'm going to call a theological message. By a theological message, I mean I'm taking from a variety of scriptures and putting together a grid or a framework to think through how do we land the plane on this and how can I think about this issue going forward. So I'm not like I traditionally do. I might go to one, one passage, have you open up, and we'll just talk through that, talk through what the words mean, the meaning of the text, and bring some application to that. This morning will be different. We're going to be in a couple different passages this morning trying to build a theological framework around this. Because we live in a world in which the things that I'm going to talk about are not necessarily shared, believed, um, valued. And so in light of that, how do we function? How do we work? Um, and I'd like to say at the beginning here, too, I'm grateful to um, a guy by the name of Al Moeller uh, for his thoughts that have helped this morning, but also kind of throughout the series. There have been many that I've read on this that have helped. Um, Moeller wrote a book called We Cannot Be Silent that I recommend to you um, as reading. And at the end of his book, he also deals with about 30 practical questions about what should I do in this situation, how should Christians respond here, you know, all these kind of things that could be helpful for you. So as we begin thinking about this, um, this deal of how do I land the series, how do I think about this big picture, let me say this about uh, the people of God. Um, the people of God have always been what we call exilic. Let me start with this theologically. The people of God has always been exilic. By that I mean... Um, if you've ever been in a classroom where there's been a kid who's um, disobeying, they get sent to the corner. Sometimes. Sometimes they get sent to the principal's office. They get, their behavior you know, creates a, a differentiation between them and their class, and they move somewhere else. You can call that exiled. They're exiled to the corner. No one likes to be exiled to the corner. They simply don't. I'm not with everybody. Unless you really want the attention, then you're going to make yourself even bigger in the corner and you know, your personality is going to get you in trouble and all that. But by and large, we don't like to be exiled. But the people of God have always been exiled. So you talk about Old Testament stuff. The people of God in the Old Testament have always been exilic people. They've been overcome by, uh, by enemies in the Old Testament, removed from their homeland, replaced, displaced, God has always promised a remnant to be brought back together. And that has happened, that the people of God have always been exilic and been trying to find a home. In the New Testament, Jesus himself made an incredible statement. He said, the foxes have their holes, the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Right? Some of you know that statement. In other words, I don't even have a home of my own. And so if you're a, a follower of Jesus this morning, just so we know, just to be clear on this, we're following someone who doesn't have a home and someone who was crucified by popular opinion. And so if someone along the way has sold you into the belief that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you will be comfortable in the culture, that people will embrace you, you will be a part of the majority culture. If that is a belief that you have or a value that you have, someone sold you a lie. The people of God have always been exilic. Even in the book of Acts, the persecution that comes into the early church is real and pressing. And that's what moves the gospel through the book of Acts, is that the people of God has always been pressed out of what the predominant culture has to say. And so on this issue in particular, if you are coming to faith and you're living out your faith in the hopes that I can be in the majority People will like me. I will be respected. I won't have to stand out. Someone has sold you a lie. 
This is not the Savior that we follow. And so there's this reality of on this issue of engendered species and how I handle you know, gender distinction, homosexuality, transgender, gay marriage, et cetera, et cetera. Just so you know, the people of God have always been exilic, just the way it has always worked. Old Testament, New Testament, and then even after the close of the canon, the scriptures, the people of God have always had this thing. So there's a problem with that. And the, the problem is, the people of God have always been exilic. By that I mean no one likes that. Like, that's not a popular message, right? I mean, like, I'm not going to sell you on that. It's just not going to work. I don't want to stand out from you. I don't want to be separated from you. I want to gather with people. Like, I'm made to be with people. I want to be liked. I want people to be around me. And so there's a problem with this fundamentally, that as Christians, as people who follow Christ, we have this desire to want to be with people, and yet... We also have a reality that we know intellectually that, yes, we've been an exilic people, and that our beliefs sometimes will come in contrast with the modern culture. And so here's a tension. We want to be like, we want to be accepted, we want to be in community, and yet we know fundamentally that we're also an exilic people. And so what happens? And, and here's what happens, and Al Mohler puts it beautifully and painfully, if we're honest with this. What will happen in the Christian community is that we will then gather around people who are like us and around people who share our values and then we will just kind of become ingrown and we will just kind of become our own little community of exile alone but at least we're together in our exilic nature when the nature of the gospel is to move out and go out and here's the way al moeller puts it if i'm honest this is painful to read and here's what he says He says, the reason why so many of our churches look just like us is because we prefer to be people with people who are just like us. Can you relate? The reason that so many of our churches look just like us is because we prefer to be with people who are just like us. And this is what outside of the church and even millennials inside the church will say about the church, particularly on this issue. You're a bunch of bigoted, closed-minded, backward-thinking people. You don't get it. And you don't even welcome people who are different from you. They might be right. They might be right. Moeller continues. He says, our idolatrous pursuit of comfort and often our reflexive moralism, I'll talk about that in a minute, leads us to associate with people who share our moral presuppositions and our own moral and theological sentiments. Our idolatrous this is painful. I'm, just, I'm not yelling at you. I hope you know that because this is personal to me. But our idolatrous, and I resonate with this, our, our idolatrous pursuit of comfort hangs us up here. It is more comfortable to be around people who share a moral framework with me. It, it simply is. It is more comfortable to be around people who share a theological framework to me. It just simply is. And then he'll use this phrase, our reflexive moralism. What he means by that is, ah, they are doing something that I think is immoral. There's a Bible verse that goes against that, and so I'm going to quote the Bible verse in my brain as a reason why I'm not going to slide over to them in relationship. This justifies my push away from them. And now I feel justified because I have a reflex moralistic response. They are not good enough for me. 
They're doing things sexually that I, oh, I find disturbing and disgusting. Moral, reflexive response, pull away. I'm going to go back to the people in the corner who are like me. And hopefully when we all gather together, we can all be like one another and I will feel comfortable. He says, man, our idolatrous, idolatrous pursuit of comfort is killing us on this issue. Now here's what's even more compelling. Our moralism is not our savior. Right? The gospel is not morality. At the end of time, heterosexual marriage will not save you. Right? Right? I mean, Jesus saves, right? But morality doesn't. Am I right or not? I mean, yes or no? We had had not. We'll do a little bit of engagement. Yes or not? Okay, so we agree. We agree. Moralism doesn't save, right? I mean, Jesus saves. Jesus can wash away sins, but I don't care how moral you are. Can moralism ever save? No, no, no. It it can't. And so here's the problem. When When we set up heterosexual marriage or sexual morality... We can set it up as kind of a surrogate savior. And we can say, as long as people are agreeing and are living alongside of those standards, they're good. And it'll save me. All I need to do is, as I grow, I need to just have the right boundaries morally, and I'm in. Like, no one is going to judge me as long as I look like them. I don't even need to respond to Jesus. I need to just not be sexually perverted according to whatever this group says, and I'll be in. And this is where Moeller just hits it hard, and he's like, listen, that is an idolatrous pursuit of comfort when we replace Jesus with morality. It's tough. So what do we do? What do we do instead of this reflexive moralism where our reflex is, ooh, that's wrong. Oh, we might even say, man, that's disgusting. Oh, I can't believe, and I would never, and ooh, I, yeah, hope, hopefully somebody finds them. Ooh, what? What do I do? Let me suggest this. That we need a better meta-narrative. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning to hear that phrase? Here's another way to think of that. This is maybe a little more theological term. Here's a better way to think about that. We need a better big picture. It's a synonymous term. We need a better big picture. In other words... Here's what a meta-narrative, or in other words, a story kind of above the story. Instead of just having a reflexive moral response to that, we need a better big picture. So, for example, here's what big pictures do for you, and you know how this works. Um, let's say you get cancer, okay? And there have been several who have been diagnosed with cancer here recently, or you're going through a major health problem. You have a chance to figure out, how am I going to respond to that? And you might come home and you might, man, poor me. The world is against me. God doesn't love me. It must have been some sin in my family, or you know, has He forgotten me? Whatever. That can be your big picture story, and you can walk through chemo treatments with that as your big picture, and you will find that truth in that if you want to. You will feel far from God, and that will confirm to you, "Yep, I've done something. God is against me. He's been silent." If that's your big picture. But if your big picture is, in the middle of this pain and suffering, there is still a sovereign God in the universe who, in the middle of my pain, still cares and loves and is present and ministers and comforts me in the middle of my grieving, I'm telling you, you will find that within your story. That your bigger picture story helps you face the reality of what you're dealing with. At a really small level, take this in a a family environment, 
It might be that in your home you have small children right now and your youngest at the dinner table, they're not paying attention to you. You've told them, you know, a hundred times, do not, whatever, you know, throw your napkin at your sister, whatever. And they, it throws a napkin or whatever this two-year-old does, four-year-old does. And in the process of doing that, after a long day for you, man, they knock the milk over, okay, with the arm. There goes the thing. There goes the milk into the chicken that mom just made, you know. And you're like, and as a dad or whatever, you're just like, and you're ready to just kind of, nurture this little one into what's right, right? And your spouse looks over to you and gives you the look of like, you need a better meta-narrative. You need a better big picture. Like, this was not a good thing to spill the milk into the chicken, but you need a bigger picture. Bigger picture, not a good thing, but don't nuclear bomb this thing right here, okay? Like, don't blow this thing up. Not cool, but big picture. And the big picture, you know this works, right? It allows you to put in perspective the things that happen. When you don't have a good big picture, you have a reflexive reaction, and things usually crash and go poorly. And so on this issue of how do we interact with people who are transgender, how do I raise kids in a world that are like this? If your reflexes, let me quote to you Romans 1, because in there it talks about, man, it talks about people who are homosexual, and it talks about God's wrath coming on people like that, and that is just in my mind and heart, and I'm going to reflex that on you. I may not tell you that, but I'm going to think that, and so I'm going to pull away from you because, woo, my reflex is to pull back. I'm going to go to Genesis 1, and God created male and female, I'm going to kind of reflex moral response to you, and and I'm pulling back. We need a better big picture. Not that any of those things are wrong. I'm not against Romans 1. I'm not against Genesis 1. I'm not against those. But we need a better big picture. One way to think about this, and this is the big picture I want to give to you. Okay? Three tiers, three filters that I encourage you to run our response to these issues through. First of all is this, creation. Second of all is the fall. Third is redemption. Now, if you're a one-word kind of person, that might work for you. If you're a, boy, those seem theological terms, I'm never going to remember that. Right? Creation, fall, redemption. Let me suggest it to you this way. God made it, man broke it, God can restore it. God made it, man broke it, God can restore it. So let's talk about that. Talk about that. Number one, creation or, you know, God made it. Right? God made it. Genesis 1 and 2. God makes Male and female in his image. He just does. This is my beginning point, my big picture. And you know, I've, if you've been with this series, you're tracking already that God has made male and female in his image. And so here's the situation. You believe this. If you believe this is true, this is your response. God made man and woman in his image. This is where I start. This is ideal. This is Garden of Eden stuff. And then your teenager or your young adult or your, your peer at work or your, your uncle or whatever comes to you and you're like, yeah, that's really good. But what about those who are born intersex? And they tell you, and here's the facts that we know, about 1 in 1,500 births are what we would call intersex, meaning their biological distinction is ambiguous and unclear. And they'll say, well, doesn't that mean, therefore, that being transgender is okay? That there maybe is a third category of ambiguous biological distinction. What of that? How do I process that? How do I handle that? And what about, what about uh, trying to find, what if, what if somebody soon, what if a scientist sometime, sometime soon finds a DNA strand 
It says, look, people are born with these tendencies toward homosexuality or toward being transgender. I mean, what, what if they find that? What of that? This is where you're like, okay, God made it. Man broke it. Fall. Here's how I respond to that. God made it, man broke it. When man broke it, it broke the cosmos. Like everything about the world in which we live, which is broken, is a result of the fall of man. That's what I believe. Genesis 3, even in Genesis 4. That the reason that some people are born intersex is not because they don't have the image of God on them, but because they are born into a world in which the fall has impacted even biology. You know anyone whose one leg is longer than the other? You know anyone whose nose is about 10 feet long? I mean, so, you know anyone who can't stand up straight because their spine isn't straight? You know, listen, we know people who are, you look at the way that their body is made, and you're like, I don't think that this was exactly how God designed it. Like, I don't think Adam, you know, was like this when he was created. Like, that's probably not the way that God designed it. And then over time, things got better. Like, I think God created perfection. And then with the fall, the fall impacts even biology. There's no question in my mind. So for those who are born intersex, to me, I, that's not an issue. It's Totally different than being transgender, by the way. Being transgender says, I was born male, I want to be female. Or I was born female and I want to be male. Being born intersex is, I was born with an ambiguous biological makeup, and somewhere along the line we need to figure out, am I male or female? What's that? But that biology is impacted by the fall, even to that degree. It doesn't make that person any less of an image bearer of God, just as it makes person whose one leg is longer or shorter, no less of an image bearer. It's just the reality that biology is impacted by the fall. The same as if a DNA strand is found that says this is, you know, someone was born with homosexual tendencies. I'm like, okay, that's not going to blow me out of the water. It's not going to blow my theology. You're like, okay, biology is impacted by the fall. I mean, not, okay, now that hasn't been found, but even if it is, that doesn't concern me. Biology is impacted by the fall, just the way that that is. Now think about this in the meta-narrative in the big story. God made it, man broke it. Man broke it with the fall of man. It's just simply the way that works. Now, when man broke it, here's another question that your teenager, your young adult might have, and that is, okay, man broke it. Now let me ask you, Mom, Dad, let me ask you, um, what harm does it do if my friend Johnny wants to be Jeannie? That's not hurting me, right? I mean, they can do that if they want to. So what's the harm in that? It's a legitimate question. And here's the response that I would give to you. It is dangerous to reduce morality to observable harm. It's dangerous to say that our moral bottom line is that we're only going to make moral decisions on the basis of what I observe to be harm. The reason that's dangerous is we can't always observe the harm that's present. In other words, if I were to judge in a moment, these might be easy examples, but if I were to judge in a moment... A dinner table, family gets together for dinner, they got cookies on the table, they bring out the cookies, everybody gets two cookies, because we're feeling generous tonight. Little, little Johnny in the corner is like, man, those are so good, mom, can I have another one? Okay. Sure. Harm? In the moment? No. No. I mean, what's going to happen to Johnny with one more cookie? Nothing. Now what happens tomorrow when Johnny asks for two more cookies? Well, he had one, you know, they're not that big. Okay, two. 
if Johnny continues to blow past nutritional boundaries, I can't see the immediate harm of it tonight. But if in his mind and in his life he begins to create a habit of unhealth, we know that ultimately it leads to harm. But in the moment, it doesn't lead to harm. One blowout at Shady Maple for me, all right, is not going to raise me 20 pounds. Maybe it will. Actually, that's a possibility, right? But if at the end of the day, like, I don't understand, if I don't understand, don't have the framework to put that in proper perspective, then I'm going to end up with harm in my life that I don't even see coming at the time. This is why, listen, our country even gets this. This is why the U.S. decides to do something about ISIS before ISIS even comes here. They recognize that while, if you want to say it, it, it creates no harm in us, if you want to be this kind of selfish and inward focused, like, so what if they want to, you know, they want to take prisoners uh, in Syria? You know, so they took another city. Big deal. i got to go to work today. In a way, it doesn't hurt us in the moment, but we understand that we have an interest in caring about more than just observable harm around us. Because ultimately, what in the moment doesn't seem like it's observable harm can become that if I don't address it. So if we don't deal with issues like ISIS or even nutritional boundaries, even exercise boundaries or whatever, if we don't deal with them, they become dangerous and harmful things. And that's the same issue here. So this is the question. Let me, let me ask you, what... what if someone's asking me that question, I would say, why don't you find me a society in which they've been better when they've eliminated traditional marriages? Find me a society in which economically they become better when we reduce maleness and femaleness to just humanity and we start stripping away the foundation of a social culture. Find me a culture like that. In other words, the most beneficial thing we can do is provide human beings with the greatest potential for human flourishing. And a traditional marriage is, biblically speaking, going to provide that greatest benefit to humanity. And so what damage does it do if Johnny wants to be genie? Today, in this moment, very little to you. Big picture, great damage to a society. Right. Now, God made it, man broke it, God can restore it. This is where it becomes so important for you and for me. Redemption. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 uh, one of my favorite verses all time because of the power of it, and if we can get our minds around this, I don't care if you don't hear anything else that I ever say for the rest of my life. If we are on Romans 5.8 and we're tracking on the impact of that together, Romans 5.8, you may know it already. While we were still sinners, Christ, you know, you know that? Christ died for us. I come back to that verse over and over. It's so profound. While you were still away from God, not even turning to him, but while you're still all the way away, Christ died for you and for me. This is significant. Here's, here's the deal. You and I, we need a Savior as much as Johnny who wants to be Jeannie. Okay? We need the same thing. And we are in no higher moral position than anyone else. Here's the reality that anyone who has come of age, anyone who has hit adolescence and into puberty has blown it sexually. No one who has passed adolescence and passed puberty is completely sexually pure. No one. I don't, I don't care... I don't care how good you think you are. If you can say that I have never had, never had an impure thought about anybody else ever, man, then let's talk and why don't you write a book for the rest of us? 
Because there's no one in that category. And that's the only way that we can make those kind of moral judgments from a moral high ground and say, I've never fallen into sexual temptation. <laughs> no, I never have. You've got to be kidding me. Listen, we're all sexual sinners after adolescence, just the way, the way it works. And so we all need a Savior. Just, that's reality. At the same time, I'm just going to share from my story. Some people will argue from a Christian perspective, man, they just need to, to choose not to, to engage your homosexual tendencies. From my perspective, when I was coming of age, there was never a moment in my life where I'm like, I want to decide, should I like boys or girls? Let me make a decision. I, may, I don't know what I'm going to choose. I didn't have that moment at all. I just instinctively was like, whoa, I thought girls were really weird. And now they're not. Like It wasn't a moment of choosing it just was. I, I, I don't know what your experience was, but I never was like, I'm going to choose to like girls. No. It just was a part of the wiring. And it won't surprise me at all if those who struggle with homosexual tendencies were like, I didn't choose to like the same gender. It just was. I got, okay. Now, does that mean that God has wired that into you? I don't think that this is the purpose of mankind. Just like my heterosexual tendencies have to be brought in line, in other words, just because I like girls doesn't mean that I can like every girl, right? Like that's unhealthy. I've got to bring that in line. Same for homosexual tendencies, man. I've got to bring that in line. But I recognize the sexual temptation and struggle for what it is. I'm a part of that. I'm in the same game, right? That's just the way it is. And I'll also say this. Discipleship. Discipleship is a process. I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but Jesus' disciples, when they were with him, like they were not fixed overnight. Like, can you imagine that? I know some of you sometimes wrestle, and I know you do because I do, <laughs> wrestle with the feeling, of, am I ever going to get on top of this? Why do I have to keep learning the same lesson, and why can't I get over it? And it's easier to see it in other people, like, why can't they get over and he get over and she get over? Why can't they change? Listen, I don't know if you ever thought about this before. The disciples, they lived with Jesus. Jesus, all right? I mean, you talk about finding a good teacher, a good leader, a good communicator. I mean, they lived with Jesus, and they still had struggles after three years. I mean, they're living with God, and they still don't get it. Like, if I can just snap out of it like that, oh, oh, why didn't someone tell me it was wrong to be homosexual? Now I'll just fix that tomorrow. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Nothing works that way in discipleship. It takes time. It's the process of, ah, I need to learn that, I know that more, connect with people, engage that, trust God for that, deal with that, and I'm, I'm good, and then, wow, I failed. Man, I'm a terrible person, but I'm not, okay, I'm going to start again, and here we go. It is a process. It is a process of discipleship. The restoration of God, when I say God can restore it, it is a process. The disciples were not like magically fixed overnight. They didn't become little perfect men overnight. It just wasn't the way it worked. So discipleship is this process. Here's the meta-narrative, the story. As you think about these issues, God made it. Man broke it, and God can restore it. And let me work this out in practical terms, all right? Question. You've asked some of these questions. I'm going to throw just a couple of them up here, and then I'm going to wrap it up here in just one second. Should my kid go to play at their transgender classmate's house? Good question. You're a parent. You're wondering, what should I do? I got a transgender kid in my kid's class. They want to have my kid over to play at their house. What should I do? 
Should I have a reflexive moral response? Here's what the Bible says, this verse, that verse. Let me Google it quick. You know, let me find you know, Bible Gateway or Blue Bible Letter Edition. I forget what that is. Anyway, you know, what, what do I do? Do I call a pastor? Do I, you know, what do I do? What if I think through creation, fall, redemption? God made it. Man broke it. God can restore it. All right, listen. Here's a, t- a time for a conversation with my little kid. Number one. Go into anyone's house, regardless of gender or sexuality. Go into anyone's house. I'm assuming in this thing that we're talking, there's safety that is set up. Like, you're good to go. You're not going to be worried about safety. Now, it's a whole nother issue. I'm just assuming that's good to go. All right. Should they go play transgender Johnny or Jeannie's house? You know, what, what should we do? Here's a chance to talk. Listen. Hey, son, God made it. Here's how God made us, to be male and female. But man broke it. Man broke it. And so your friend is struggling with how God has made him. And let me tell you, you also struggle with how God has made you. He's made you as a little boy to grow, to be unselfish and loving. Remember the times when you fought with your sister? You've kind of taken your things? Like, we, bro- we break it. We break the ideals that God makes. But God can restore it. Like as you respond in faith to God, like he can restore your heart to the right things. And so as you go over to this house, know that God made male and female, that man broke it. But God can restore even Johnny in time to to him. I mean, here's a chance for conversation. Now go play and have a good time. What about this? How should I parent my child through gender identity crisis of homosexual feelings or homosexual feelings? So my kid is dealing with, I don't know if I'm a boy or girl, male or female. Uh, I, I got homosexual tendencies. What should I do? God made it. Let's talk about that. Here's, well, here's how God made us to be. Man broke it. I get the confusion. I get the struggle. Remember, discipleship is a process. I'm not going to tell you you've got to get over this by Thursday. And I'm also not going to tell you that you need to just kind of fix it in a hurry or, you know, kind of get over this, you know, without proper processing. I'm going to be patient with you and walk through this. It's confusing. I get it. God can restore it. As a parent having the big picture view. I mean, I can reflex morally if you want me to, and I can hit you hard with Bible verses if you want me to, or I can big picture it, meta-narrative it, and say, let me put it in context. How about this question? How should I respond to my classmate who is transgender or homosexual? Some of you are going to school right now with, with kids who are dealing with that. And, and you're, I, think almost every, I think almost every school that I know of around here is dealing with this, even right now. How do I deal with that if I'm a classmate? First of all, um, friends speak truth to one another, right? Right? Or they should? Would you agree that you're not being a good friend if you're not being honest with one another? That seems like uh, that's probably true. So if that is true, friends share honestly what they believe. They share the truth. But they are foolish to share the truth outside of love. They're foolish to share the truth harshly. They're foolish to share the truth without compassion, without care and love. So friends, share the truth. God made it. This is how I believe God made it. Man broke it. It's confusing. I'll be honest. It's confusing. I get confused sometimes. I struggle as well. God can restore it. Allowing your life to be lived out in front of your friend where they see your brokenness and failure and the restoration of God. Where you're able to say, listen, I'm wrestling with with this. I'm just telling you. And I struggle with these temptations. I struggle with these issues. But God has forgiven me through Christ. 
God is restoring me. I'm not perfect. This is a process of discipleship. God made it. Man broke it. God can restore it. Now, how should the church respond? How should the church respond? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes that um, the church people should stay away from those who are sexually immoral. And some people like to stop right there at the verse and just kind of be like, this is what, how the church should respond. Paul goes on to say, he said, let me be clear with you. He said, I don't mean people outside the church, because if you are removed from people outside the church, you'd have to leave the world. <laughs> like you, you can't be removed from those who are sexually immoral outside the church. It's just not going to work. There's, where are you going to go if that's the case? In order to get a picture of how I think the church can respond, I want to give you a very simple image. And this, again, I'm going to lean back to Al Mohler for it. It's so simple uh, and, and yet so helpful to see. And here's what Mohler writes toward the end of his book on We Cannot Be Silent. He says this about a Christian response. When we go to a little league game in order to see our own children or grandchildren play and see a lesbian couple cheering on their son, we need to overcome the isolationist instinct to stay away from that couple. Summary. Picture. When you go to a baseball game, you go to class, you go to work, you go to a family gathering, when you're wherever, and there's something in you that reflexes morally against what you're feeling and seeing. Suggestion, and I think wisely so, in the context of the gospel, don't slide further away on the bench. Slide closer. Your instinct is to push back. Your instinct is to say, I want to gather around people who are morally like me, and yet your instinct, I hope, will remember that that is an idolatrous pursuit of comfort. Because this statement here is finally true. God's plan to restore what we broke is not morality, but the gospel. God's plan to restore what we broke is not, let me give some good moral commands to people if they can only share these moral directives with everybody. They will all be saved. Our morality doesn't save us. Heterosexual marriage doesn't save us. Even sexual purity doesn't save us. It can't bear the weight of our soul. It can't forgive our sins. God's plan to restore brokenness is not morality, but the gospel. God made it. Man broke it. But God can restore it. And so in all of this series, and how we think about this issue as a church, what does it look like for us to slide over that which instinctively we feel like, ooh, and not to give in to the idolatrous pursuit of comfort. We're exilic people. We're exilic people. Always have been. Always will be. And yet in that, we reach with the good news of the gospel to those who are outside. And that will not work if we slide away on the bench rather than slide toward them. We know that intellectually. I don't think anyone would argue with that. May God help us to do that when we need to, with courage to slide toward and never away. This is the message and the hope of the gospel. This is what I would love us to be about here. Will you join me in prayer? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for your good 
gospel message for the hope of Jesus Christ. I thank you that you have made us, that even as we broke it, that you can restore us. And I pray that we would be men and women, young men and young women, boys and girls, those who are interacting in this world in a way that we are not idolatrously pursuing our own comfort, idolatrously pursuing people who think like us and behave like us. May we continue to yield our will to the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in the middle of our sin, you reached to us, pulled us, made us your own. And so as we interact with those around us, may we slide down the bench toward them. May we slide into relationship, even with those who instinctively we would disagree with, in love, in care, and also in truth, in wisdom, not sacrificing what we believe, but not foolishly, callously leading in with a moralistic response to our world. May our gospel be Jesus. May our gospel not be morality. Tear that away where that is present. May we be people who are instinctively given over to reaching those who are far outside of you. Give us courage to do what we know we need to do. We pray this in Jesus' name.